nice to be with you this morning. I'll introduce my, my family over there. I have my wife, Elizabeth, smiling, likes it when I call attention to her. And then my son, Timothy, with his Hershey shirt. He's the piano man, the talented musician. Andrew, I think he's next door, but he has on a bright red suit. Sometimes he has orange. He's our domino artist and the best landscaper in the congregation. Todd, I just had to throw that out there. Uh, <clears throat> right, so he's an expert of all these things. And I am me. I always have been. I'm Paul. I'm missionary with Ratio Christi. Ratio Christi is a Latin word. Uh, Latin words means reason for Christ. We are a Christian apologetics campus ministry. And when you hear Christian apologetics, that does not mean we're a bunch of sorry Christians. It's from the Greek apologia, which means to defend. So we like to give people answers, reasons for why they believe what they believe. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to make a defense, to give a reason uh, for the hope that is in you, in 1 Peter 3.15. So we're a campus apologetics uh, ministry. Our mission is to equip university students and faculty to give historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. We want to help people understand why it is that we believe what we believe. And this is important. It's important because we find that about 75% of students walk away from the church during their time in college. When we look at the different surveys, and Barna did a survey, Pew Research, and Southern Baptist also put together a survey, similar results, looking at about 70 to 75% of students that have grown up in an evangelical household, attended church regularly, and then when they go off to college, about 75% walk away from the church. And we can break that down further. Eventually, about one-third of them may return back to the church, but we're finding that's only a third. More and more students never come back. Why is that and how do we handle it? Well, most of them leave because of some kind of intellectual doubt. It varies to different degrees, but often there's some kind of intellectual doubt behind that. And we have to remember, Christianity is not just experiential. It is also intellectual. And it is important for us to provide reasons for why we believe what we believe. It's important to have facts for our faith. Because sometimes our feelings do not coincide with the facts. Sometimes we may not feel God's presence. I think of Psalm 13, when the psalmist cries out, uh, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? There are some times where we may not feel God's presence, especially when we encounter the hardships of life, whether that's through sickness and suffering or death, and we may not feel the God thing, but it's important that we know that we have reasons that will sustain us when our feelings do not coincide. When your beliefs are mocked and ridiculed by your professors and your peers. It is important to have facts for your faith, important to have a solid and a firm foundation. 
Now, there are many great campus ministries out there, and we love to partner with them. Uh, Crew, is, they do a great job with outreach and evangelism. InterVarsity and Navigators, they're focused on discipleship, and they do a wonderful job with that. Uh, our focus is, is, is much more narrow of an approach. We are trained in apologetics. And where we can, we partner with other ministries and their events, and we help to... In fact, one of the things that got me interested with Rosho Christie, I was mentoring a young man, and he, I encouraged him to get involved with one of the ministries, and he got involved with InterVarsity. They were doing a great job, went to an event. Students were coming up, lots of students were coming up, which was fantastic. And he said, it was really good. We got to talk with a lot of people. There were so many questions, and no one knew the answers. We need to bring some answers in there. So it, it, is, it is great to partner with other organizations and say, hey, let, let's provide you some apologists and let's train you in some of these things. So we are more of a special ops type of ministry focused in on apologetics. And over the years, we've seen it grow tremendously. We're at about 130 different campuses now throughout the country. And we're also in Philippines, Canada, South Africa. We're branching off and doing high school ministries with a college prep. There's a professor ministry. A new branch is also training a select group of PhD students so that they can be the next professors in the classroom with a Christian voice. And it's exciting to see the way that God is working through Ratio Christi. Many have been trained to address the emotional needs, but non-believers, they also need strong arguments for Christianity to be able to consider and to have confidence in what we believe. So again, our mission is here to be uh, provide students and faculty with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. And I appreciate your, this opportunity to share with you this morning and tell you a little bit about Ratio Christi. Now, one of the most common questions that we get is about the Bible. How can we know that the Bible is true? How can we trust the Bible? Now, after the service, you'll have an opportunity to look at our scroll. And when you do so, um, th this particular scroll, it's about four to 500 years old. It's from Yemen. It I love being able to take this thing around with me, right, and show it off. But we had a, a donor that donated three scrolls to Ratio Christi for the purpose of displaying it as often as possible so that others can interact and see this, this artifact, to see just how carefully the scribes recorded the scripture. You can see for yourselves. And this one is about four to 500 years old. It starts over here, because Hebrew goes right to left. I think Pastor Joe's gonna translate it for everyone after the service. Right there is Genesis 1-1. This is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it goes from right to left. We do ask that you, you do not touch the text, you may touch the edges. This is Pasul, which it's no longer used for ceremonial services. It is considered uh, un unclean for that because it has different defects. So it is no longer in use. It's okay to touch the edges of it. There is a pointer that you can use that would touch the text itself, but just don't use your fingers. And I ask, please do not put coffee on the table, or lean over with coffee as you're looking at the words, or you got it? Okay, so we'll just keep that in mind. Can we trust the Bible? We're going to look at a few different aspects to answer that question. It's infallibility, integrity, and it's impact. 
the infallibility of the Bible. Inerrancy means the scriptures do not affirm any errors. And infallibility means that the Bible cannot err. Uh, we can have inerrancy without infallibility, but we cannot have infallibility without inerrancy. So inerrancy says the scriptures do not affirm any errors, and infallibility says that the Bible cannot err. I'll just note that this particular argument is not to tell us how we know that the Bible is the Word of God. What I'm looking at in this aspect is simply to say that if the Bible is the Word of God, there are certain conclusions that we must hold. There's certain implications to that. So when we talk about the infallibility, we look, first of all, that God cannot err. God cannot err. And the reason why God cannot err is because God is perfect. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless, psalmist tells us in Psalm 18. God is also omniscient. You know anyone who thinks that they're a know-it-all? God actually is a know-it-all. He is a know-it-all. I am merely a know-it-Paul. God knows everything. His understanding no one can fathom. We're told in Isaiah 40. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. We read from Hebrews 4. So God is omniscient. God is also truthful. God cannot err because he's perfect. He is omniscient and he is truthful. And Psalm 119 says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus uses this in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, is there anything impossible for God? Actually, yes. There are some things that are impossible for God. This makes some people nervous when I say that, but hear me out. God cannot lie. We're told in Scripture in Hebrews 6, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. In Titus 1-2, Paul says, the God who never lies, talking about his promises before the ages. God cannot lie, and God cannot change. In Malachi 3, I, the Lord, changeth not. He cannot change. Why would he change? If he's perfect, what is he going to change from and change to? If he's already perfect, if he changes, he won't be perfect. But he's perfect, so he's not going to be imperfect. So he cannot change. He can change us, and he does change us. He changes other things and events. But God cannot change. God cannot break a promise in Psalm 89, in Leviticus 26. God's word cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken in John chapter 10. God cannot sin in Habakkuk 1, 3, 13. Psalm 11, we're told God cannot sin. Ah, oh, sometimes the skeptics will say, well, gotcha. See, God has limitations. Look at all these limitations on God. Okay, it's like, look, I finally found your flaw. You're completely flawless. That is not a limitation. These are not limitations, but they are the negation of limitations and imperfections. So the fascinating thing talking about God. He's so perfect, you have to negate all the imperfections. 
So lying, anything like this, breaking a promise, sin, God cannot do those because he's perfect. It's fascinating. So God cannot err because he's perfect. He's omniscient. He knows all things and he's truthful. The Bible is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training of righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so God cannot err. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible, which is the word of God, cannot err. Psalm 119 tells us the word, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're looking, we're confronted with the word of God. What is it that we are going to make of it? What do we do with it? I'd like to look at the integrity of the Bible. How reliable is it? A number of years ago, I had lunch with a student at UNH Manchester, and he told me, I do not believe in the Bible because it wasn't written until the third or the fourth century. Now, that is not true, right? But I asked him, how did you come to that conclusion? Scratched his head for a minute. So I, I don't know. I guess I just kind of made it up, right? Third or fourth century, it sounded good to me. And I asked him, if there was evidence that the Bible was written in the first century, would you consider it? He said, Yes, he was kind of busted then because he was giving that as his excuse for not believing. Would you consider it? And from there, we went on to have some discussion. In fact, one of the lines of questioning I often like to use is when there are objections, what kind of criteria would help you to trust the Bible? Like, what do you think we would need to find in order for you to think that the Bible is, is a reliable document? And look, there are several approaches when it, when it comes to the Bible, but you know, one of the issues we have to address is, you know, what I have here, does this reflect what was actually written in the first century for the New Testament, or was this something that was written later? Has it been changed? So we, we go through some different kinds of criteria, and usually we'll come up with, we're looking for something written in the first century, maybe by an eyewitness or someone who knew the eyewitnesses, we would expect for things to be historically accurate, right? If things are written in the Bible and they're recorded elsewhere in history, they should match rather than contradict each other. So we, we come up with this particular list of criteria. Skeptics will sometimes question whether the Bible is accurate. They'll say, we don't have any autographs. We don't have the original writings. See, how can the Bible be true if we don't have the originals? You can't know. Can't know for sure what they originally said. We can't know that they didn't modify the text. So let's at least make sure that we have the right kinds of expectations when we approach the text. We look for the evidence. So the writing materials in the ancient world. So early on, we see the artwork on the walls of the cave. We have different drawings to tell stories. And this was fascinating approach, but they realized this wasn't gonna work for 
very long. They could see the writing on the walls. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the writing on the walls. Okay. Yep. So they realized this wouldn't work. They used another approach. So we looked at clay tablets. They would use, th this was a, a very cheap method. They could get a sharp instrument and write out different words here. So we see that. And then stone it was inscribed with an iron pen. So we see Barney Rubble there, the Flintstones. We grew up on this, right? Flintstone vitamins, saw the cartoons. Right? That's how they did it. They would take that, they would chisel these things in. Of course, that's hard to carry around. You can't really bring a library around very well. But they could record things in stone. They say nothing is written in stone. There is nothing written in stone, and there is nothing written with stone. A tough crowd, I tell you. <laughs> Leather parchment. So that's what we see. The, the scroll here is written on vellum, written on le leather, vellum, parchment. Those are different grades of, of leather that's used. But this material would be, it would take the, the skin, they would remove the hairs by scraping it off, and actually would often use dog dung to help smooth it out, but I digress. And then they would stretch this out and stretch it to different degrees. After it dries out, they would stretch it, and then sometimes it would get really thin. Uh, this, is, this is about your average thickness that you see here on this scroll. But this was, typically, this was a much more expensive approach, and it was usually used for official writings. The Old Testament scrolls are, of course, made of parchment. But then we have oh, papyrus. So the earliest New Testament manuscripts were written on papyrus. This is a plant-based material. They would take the, the plant, they would layer them together, and then hammer them down, and you would end up with something that looked like that. There's your piece of paper. And it's very difficult for a papyrus to survive very long. It has to be in the right conditions, especially the sands of Egypt. Uh, or in, in caves, it could, it could last for a while. But after several years or decades, it would begin to deteriorate. And of course, over centuries, it deteriorates even more. You might end up with a fragment like this where it's falling apart. And I mention this. Sometimes skeptics will, will say, well, hey, look, why don't you have these first century copies of the New Testament? I have gas station receipts from four or five years ago that have almost completely deteriorated, right? You know what I'm talking about. You're getting ready for tax time. You're going through your receipts. These things have barely made it a few years. The ink has disappeared off of them. So I think it's fairly significant that we have thousands of manuscripts from the first few centuries that were written on papyrus. So our expectation should not be that we would have a first century copy of the New Testament. And besides, that isn't how ancient documents were preserved. The way that you would preserve something in the ancient world, I mean, they didn't put these manuscripts up in museums for people. See, what, you would copy a manuscript when it began to deteriorate. That's how you preserved it. You copied the manuscript onto a new one, and they safely discarded of, of the other ones. They discarded of it different ways. Sometimes they would bury them, especially sacred writings. Other times they would put them, especially when you're dealing with the scrolls, they would discard those in a certain uh, area in the temple, in the closet, they would put those away. But the point is, we shouldn't expect to find them. They weren't trying to preserve them by holding on to them. 
they would discard of them. They preserved them by copying them so that we would have nice, reliable copies, accurate copies of the New Testament. So do we have the autographs or the original writings of the New Testament? No, we do not. Do we have the autographs for any classical writer? No, we do not. We don't even have all the original writings of Shakespeare. And that wasn't too long ago in comparison to the biblical literature. So let's take a closer look about the reliability of the Bible, because the, the entire case for Christianity seem, seems to stand or fall on this, on the reliability of the record. If we don't know that this, if we can't have confidence that what we have here is what was originally written, then it really is going to hinder our faith. We don't know that this is really the Word of God, what was really taught. We have some different methods to help us understand, uh, we call it the bibliographical test. This is our way to say, is this piece of literature, is this a reliable piece of literature? And one of the aspects of that is, what is the number of manuscripts? How many manuscripts do we have? After all, the more manuscripts we have, it gives us more comparison to tell if there was any kind of variation in the text, and if it is reflecting what was originally written. Also, the number of manuscripts will help. So we want, we want to have the date, we want earlier manuscripts. So the earlier copies, we can make sure it's closer to the original. The number of copies allows us to verify it. All right, we have 100 manuscripts, 1,000 manuscripts. We can look at these and say, all right, I see differences here, and it helps us to identify what was originally stated. And then the time gap. How many years was it from when it was written to the earliest copy that we have? And all of this is, is what we use to help us to determine what is the accuracy of our New Testament documents. So we have earlier manuscripts. When we look at the different works of antiquity, you have Homer in his Iliad. It was written about 800 BC. The earliest manuscripts that we have, 400 BC. So there's a 400-year time gap. And Herodotus, we see 1,350-year time gap. And Sophocles, a 1 to 200-year time gap. Plato's writings, a 1,300-year time gap. So you get the picture there. But the New Testament, the time gap is only 50 years from the time that it was written to the earliest copies that we have. That's fairly impressive to have that. It stacks up much higher than all the other books of antiquity. This is just an image of Codex Sinaiticus. This is from AD 340. This was written on, on vellum. This has half of the Old Testament, and it actually has all of the New Testament. And this is very well preserved from 340. It's one of the oldest and most accurate copies of the New Testament. So we have, we have bunches of these things. We have more manuscripts when we look at the number of manuscripts. Homer, um, and, and these totals were updated a number of years ago, had the opportunity to join with some other apologists in Dallas, and uh, Josh McDowell actually put this on, wanted to update all the totals that had been out there, so many new discoveries, but for many of the secular writings, they have new discoveries. And, and what he was wanting to highlight in all that, the ancient world, they knew how, I mean, they didn't have the Xerox machines, Actually, most of you all don't know the Xerox machines, but they, they didn't have our, our coffee machines or scanners and all this, but they knew how to make copies 
They had professionals who did this. And as we look at the ancient writings, we've, we're finding more and more of them, and we see reliable copies of those as well. It just gives us all the more confidence. But Homer's writings, we find 1,800 of them. Uh, Herodotus, 109. Sophocles, 193. Plato, 210. Caesar, 251. The New Testament, we have 5,838 manuscripts. This is referring to the early Greek manuscripts that were written on papyrus. 5,838. That's a whole lot more than any of the other this is more than all the other pieces. In fact, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. It's really overwhelming. And when we look at the New Testament Greek manuscripts, we have the 5,838, but then we can look at the early translations of the New Testament, and there's 18,524 early translations of the New Testament. And Old Testament scrolls and codices, we find 42,000 copies of that. If we look at the total manuscript evidence for the Bible, then it gets us to 66,362. And there's still more being found, but we, we you know, can't keep up with updating those totals all the time. But it's an impressive amount. And within 125 years of the completion of the New Testament, over 43% of all the verses are found in papyri. And remember, it's quite remarkable to find a piece of papyrus that lasts this many years. It is simply should not be the expectation that we would have that many early copies. But we still have a lot of early copies of the New Testament. It's quite impressive, and no other pieces of literature have that kind of evidence. More accurately copied manuscripts. Boy, we look at the the Septuagint, that's the Greek copy of the Old Testament. We can look at that text and see uh, how well preserved the Old Testament is. The careful practice of the Jewish scribes. When you have a chance to look at this, I mean, my handwriting, even when I have the college rule lines, you know, my handwriting is terrible. So I look at this, and you'll notice there are lines that they made on this text. They would get, actually no metal could touch the scroll. So they would use glass or a thorn to, to make these horizontal lines across the text, and then they would drop the letter down from each one of those lines. But very careful, and they counted the number of letters, the number of words, they knew where the midpoint was, there was over 300,000 letters, these were carefully counted and confirmed before it would be brought into the text. And if there was any discrepancy, we'd have to start over on that section. They did not have to start over the, sometimes there are, there are some myths behind it. They didn't have to restart the entire Torah process. Um, they would redo that section and then they would count everything again. We'd make sure everything lines up. But more accurately copied manuscripts. This isn't like a game of the, the telephone game or something. Sometimes people will bring that up, say, well, isn't it just like the telephone game, you start off one thing and then it loses something in, in the transmission? No, I mean, this was written, this is written down. This isn't something you whispered in someone's ear, but something that you wrote down. And you had scribes who carefully verified each piece as they went through it. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, 
Prior to that, the earliest copies of manuscripts were from 900 AD. And then after the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, it was 150 BC. You have a thousand year time period difference. So when scholars began to compare what the text looks like now from AD 900, from that copy, now to the 150 BC, and you see how closely that they matched, it again gives validation behind our argument to the reliability of the biblical text. Surprising to see just how faithfully it was preserved. You'll notice on this that none of the letters are allowed to touch. Everything is carefully done. There are spaces throughout each section so that you can see and, and have no confusion as to what the text has to say. But there's greater support for the New Testament and the biblical writings as well. We have more abundantly supported manuscripts because of all the different translations. There are, again, 5,838 of the Greek manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts, but there are 18,524 New Testament early translations and 42,000 of the Old Testament scrolls and codices. So because Christianity is a missionary faith, you're going to find lots of different translations that are out there, many translations to help people to understand God's word, and we can use that to compare with the other Greek and Hebrew and see the consistency across all the different ones. In fact, the Bible is translated in 2,200 different languages and dialects, representing 90% of the world's population. And it has survived persecution over the years. There have been attempts to purge the world of, of the scriptures. In 303, the emperor Diocletian issued an edict to destroy the scriptures. It didn't work out well. 25 years later, uh, we're told that Constantine had issued an order to preserve copies, about 50 copies of the scriptures at the government's expense. So that did not turn out very well. And even with, with the scrolls, we have another scroll that was donated to us at Rosio Christi. One of them had survived the Holocaust, the Kristallnacht scroll, the Night of Broken Glass. And that one, I've displayed that one uh, before. I think that one's from about 1750. It's one where they were uh, going in, destroying the synagogues, and they had runners out. They were taking the scrolls from, uh, from the temples and, and passing them off to bring them to preserve. So we have one of those that, that was preserved. And you see events like this throughout history but they've tried to destroy the scriptures, and it has not been successful. It is still here today. We have the word of God carefully preserved. But even if we had these destroyed, many of those copies destroyed, we can also look at the citations. There are so many quotations of the New Testament from the early church fathers of the second and third century, we can compile most of the New Testament just from their quotations. So, even if we didn't have these early copies of the Greek manuscripts, we can look at other translations, translations that they had from this, early translations. And even if we didn't have those early translations, we can look at the writings of other books because they quoted uh, very frequently from the scripture. So we have that as another check, as another safeguard for the reliability of the biblical text. So the manuscript evidence, the evidence is very overwhelming for us to have confidence 
that our text resembles what was there in the first century. And there's another discussion, and I might get into it with the youth group. We get to talk with them in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to that. But there, there's another discussion about what are the discrepancies and, and why are they. And we can, we can really trace many of Some of them are just simple spelling errors. Language will change how the spelling over time. We see even British English versus American. Some things you may have color, uh, have O-U-R at the end instead of O-R, just minor variations. But those are variations that you might see in the text. And you may have some usage, like we don't usually, the, the word for donkey has changed over the years, and you might have that change so that all the students are snickering when you're reading the text. So sometimes you have a word where it may have a different connotation, a different one is used to replace it. That got me into preaching, though, when I was younger. I, I kept reading Numbers 22, and I would read from the KJV. I would stack up cushions and preach that out loud just so I could talk about Balaam. So was a, it, got me in, it got me into the Bible one way or another. So here we go. This right here is interesting. When I went to the event in 2013, this is actually a mummy mask, and we discovered many sacred texts, biblical texts, have been preserved carefully within mummy mask. So I remember Dr. Scott Carroll, he said, we all gathered around, he said, we're going to dismantle some mummy mask and extract ancient manuscripts. How cool is that? And so we did that, and we've, we found some biblical text within that. So this is hiding in, in different areas, so just to give you an idea. They would do a paper mache type of thing. So the outer layer, they would, they would call it. That's what we typically think of when we see the mask, like, hey, I can use my pointer. <laughs> Pastor Greg gets to use a pointer. I want to use one, right? So there we go. There's the mummy mask. They would take the outer layer. They would paint that. But underneath, there are many layers of manuscripts that were, this is how they would recycle the manuscripts. And within that, there are many different texts. Some of them are just odd things like receipts, right? Or you know, nothing, nothing really big. And then other times they would have sacred documents or, or great writings of philosophy. So we went through these. This was a copy, the one that I was working on. This is actually a Coptic manuscript from 1 John 2.21, which is one of the earliest copies of papyri for 1 John recorded. So it was very interesting to do that. I remember we had some interns at the table, and I was pretending to, to translate said, body over my dead, because <laughs> it's mummy mask over my dead body. All right. Just making sure you're still with me. So we did that. You know, the issue, the, to sum it all up, the Bible has been very well preserved. People have risked their lives to make sure that we have the copies, whether it's from the Holocaust and the attempts to burn down the synagogues and the sacred writings and people running off to preserve it, missionaries who have went to uh, some of the world's most dangerous regions to bring the gospel message, and they've risked their lives in order to do that. The Bible has been so carefully preserved over the years. But the question is, are we reading it? So much has been invested in making sure that we have accurate copies. You have scholars who are, who are going through the text trying to find any variation, any 
deviation in the text, then we can trace back where there are deviations. That happen. There, there are some really smart people like Dan Wallace and, and his team, some of these other textual critics. I mean, they can trace back ex the, the location and know almost the, the exact date, where it was that this came about and, and the reasoning behind it. It usually wasn't bad intention. And one day we'll get in, into all that as time allows. But so much has been invested to preserve the word of God. A Lifeway survey a number of years ago said 80% of churchgoers don't read their Bible daily. In Gallup, they had this poll, relevance of the Bible. 65% of Americans agree that the Bible answers all or most of life's basic questions. But almost half of the people who believe this about the Bible read it at least weekly. And 28% of those who agree that the Bible has all the answers we need, they say that they rarely or never read the Bible at all. 88% of households in the U.S. have a Bible. I think 4.7 Bibles per household is the average. And only about 37% read it at least once a week. It has been suggested that the worst dust storm in history would happen if the church members who were neglecting to read their Bible dusted them off simultaneously. <laughs> Sad, but true. It takes about 71 hours to listen to the Bible on audio. That's less than 12 minutes per day. I would encourage you to, to do that. I mean, you can read the, the text, but don't be afraid to listen to it by audio. When I was in college, driving to my parents' house to visit, on the, it was about a seven or eight hour drive from college. So on the way there and back, I memorized the book of Philippians by listening to it on cassette tape. And that required more effort, right? To pause, rewind, pause, rewind, fix the reel because the cassette tape got lost, all right. But I would do this and repeat it back. I recommend listening to it, especially if you have any hints of road rage. I have found that it is difficult to act out on your road rage when you're listening to the Bible. I mean, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, yeah, you know, you get angry. So, all right, cool. So when you're driving around by yourself, you can listen to the Bible and you can quote it and people are wondering who you're talking to. So that's something to do. The average person in the U.S. watches about 71 hours of TV in two and a half weeks or consuming some kind of media. So we could devote some of that time to reading the Bible. And almost half the books in the Bible take less than a half hour to read. So go ahead and knock out some of these. Get, like when you go home, take on Second John or something. Jude, just wipe that one out of the way. All right, you got a book down. So I would encourage you to do that. So we talk about the reliability of the text. We see the overwhelming evidence. I mean, the Bible blows all the other books of antiquity away. We see how accurately copied in all this. But we want to make sure that we don't just look at that and say, wow, that is fascinating. The evidence is on our side. Let's make sure that the word is also in our hearts. So I, and I credit Dr. Geisler with this list, this book of, uh, this list of descriptions, you know, what the Bible is like. The Bible is like a seed that saves us. 
You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The word is planted in our hearts. It's used by the Spirit to, to bring new life, and it will be planted and it will germinate and grow and bear fruit. So the Bible is like a seed that saves us. It is also like milk that nourishes us. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2. But we don't want to just be limited to the milk. We need to grow. The Bible is also like meat that satisfies us, like solid food. We need that meat. And in Hebrews 5, the author, he, he says, look, don't just stay on the milk. Right? You need to grow up and have something solid. Solid food is for the mature, for those of us uh, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant pra uh, practice to distinguish good from evil in Hebrews 5. The Bible is also like honey that is pleasing to us. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, Psalm 119. In Job 23, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. In Psalm 119, he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. If only that was true for us today that when we are so thirsty and we need something to quench our thirst that that our, our desire would be the word and nothing could satisfy us unless it was the word that quenched. It was the only thing that could quench our thirst. If it was the only thing that could satisfy our appetite when we're, when we're hungry and we, we, we have cravings for food and we need something, and if only it was the word that we would long for and desire, as the psalmist describes in Psalm 119, and then in Jeremiah 15, when he writes, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. He wrote this in contrast to the people of Judah who, who despised God's word, but, but to him he saw them as a joy and a delight. It is like gold that enriches us. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. It is also like silver that purifies us. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. It is also like water that washes us. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. It is also like a fire that cleanses us. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Jeremiah was addressing the false prophets who despise the word of the Lord, and like a fire, which is a great purifier that destroys all that is false, it leaves only the genuine. Also like a hammer that shatters us, is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? 
God's word will burn away falsehood and it smashes delusions, shatters it into pieces. And of course, the same hammer that breaks is also one that builds. We can look at that illustration as we go forward. But the Bible is like a fire that cleanses us. It's like a hammer that shatters us. And it's like a sword that cuts deeply into us. The word of the Lord, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It uh, penetrates the heart evenly, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I was encouraged earlier this year, my son Timothy over there, I'll pick on him, but he decided, all right, 2023, I'm going to read the Bible. He began doing a good job reading it. After a couple of nights, he came to me and said, you know, reading the Bible every day makes me feel good. Makes me feel really good. It's fantastic. I was, I was happy to hear that. A couple of days later, he came to me again, and he said, you know, sometimes reading the Bible makes me feel really bad. <laughs> right? It's true. He was looking at Matthew 5 through 7, I believe it was the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus really giving it to you. All right? You want to know what, what your life ought to look like? This is it. Oh, man, this is, this is hard stuff. So, yeah, the Bible is like a sword that cuts deeply into us, and it will surface all that stuff in us that, that needs to be changed, the sword of the Spirit. The Bible is also like medicine that keeps us from the sickness of sin. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Dwight L. Moody said, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. It is also like a mirror to reflect ourselves. James chapter 1. It's also like a lamp to our feet. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. It's that light that shines in the darkness. It is also like a counselor that comforts us. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We have that assurance from Hebrews 13, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And keep that in mind for those times where maybe you don't feel God's presence or you wonder why this is happening, why would God allow this? Remember that God cannot lie. God cannot break his promises. God cannot fail you. God is perfect. So when he gives us these promises and these assurances in scripture, you can stand confident in what he has to say. And he tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. So even in the times where we may not feel his presence, we can take confidence in the promises of God that he has given us. God's word is like a forecaster that never fails us, a prophetic word fully confirmed. It is like a toolbox that equips us. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped 
to do every good work. The evidence demonstrates clearly that the Bible, that the Bible is reliable. But are we relying on it? The Bible is reliable, but are we relying on it? And perhaps we've heard God's word, we've maybe learned it and even memorized it, but are we obeying it? Remember, James tells us not to be merely hearers of the word, but doers. Don't deceive yourselves. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to join with my brothers and sisters in examining your word. May we be equipped with it. Thank you that we have this rich word that is like a seed that saves us and milk that nourishes us, like meat that satisfies us and honey that is pleasing to us, sweet to us, gold that enriches us. It is like silver that purifies us. It is like water that cleanses us. Fire, like water that washes us, fire that cleanses us, and that hammer that shatters us, and a sword that, that cuts deeply into us. It's like the medicine that keeps us from sin, if only we would turn to it, a mirror in which we can reflect, and a lamp that shines in the darkness, a lamp to our feet. It's like a counselor that comforts us and a forecaster that never fails us. Thank you for your word. And may we practice it in our lives and may we proclaim it with our lips. In our Lord we pray. Amen.